Just a side note uh, to the announcement that Carrie made about our decision to go to two services next uh, Sunday. One of the reasons that we want to do that is we're hopeful that by going to two services and allowing people to be more comfortable with being spread out, that more people will actually come. <laughs> because we know that there are folks who may be uncomfortable with a single service. And so my hope and prayer is that if you can... And I'm not, I'm, I'm looking at you, but really, where's the camera? I'm looking at you who are listening online. If you can, I hope you do, because I really think that uh, it's important for us to gather together. Don't forsake your gathering together, as is the habit of son, but consider how to encourage each other towards love and good deeds. It's a promise and truth of Scripture that we want to take advantage of while we can, because we don't know what the future holds. So when we can, we should, and I hope you do. So, with that being said, I kind of have a confession to make. I feel like I've been a little bit uh, selfish recently, and I want to tell you why. Um, as many of you know, we, uh, Terry and Grant and I went to Dallas on Wednesday uh, to take care of some things with my brother's uh, estate. Thankfully, his house sold. We're very grateful for that, but we had to move everything out on Thursday, so Thursday was an exhausting day. Uh, Friday was closing, and then I drove home yesterday in order to be here this morning. At first, uh, a week or so ago, when I was looking ahead and I saw all that was going on, I thought, you know, I might need to get somebody to step in and, and cover me on Sunday because we've got so much happening. And I thought, but you know, let me look at the passage and see what we're going to be doing. So I looked at the passage. Uh, no, I can't give that to anybody. It's too good. I admit it's very selfish, but I'm totally glad that we're here together this morning because I don't want to share this with anyone else. I'm sorry. Um, just as a reminder, as we began our study in Romans and listened to Paul's instruction, the news just kind of seemed like it was going from, from bad to worse. It began by looking at others, those who suppress the truth, those who serve the creature instead of the creator. They're rejecting God's authority to rule their own lives, where essentially everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Paul says they are without excuse, that they will stand in judgment for their sin. And we probably felt pretty good about ourselves because it was talking about other people until he turns the corner very soon after that and says, but we're without excuse as well. Because we have no right to judge anyone else because we essentially are just as guilty as they are. He makes that very clear when he says there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks after God. No one who understands. And if, if that wasn't clear enough, in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The news just went from bad to worse, and then in chapter 3, he turns a corner. And from that point on, it seems like the news keeps going from good to better. Uh, Paul uh, seems to be looking at these details from every possible angle, like a, like a diamond. He wants to see the beauty of every facet of God's miraculous work of redemption. Kind of like that jeweler looking through that eyepiece. He wants to magnify our salvation as a miraculous work of God. In fact, in the verses that we'll look at this morning, Paul will identify this precious truth, and then he'll follow it by saying, and not only this, or 
and how much more. He does that four different times in these 11 verses, stacking truth upon truth upon truth. He wants us to see that God has left nothing to chance. He's thought of everything. He'll explain how we have nothing to prove, that nothing is wasted, and there's nothing to lose. Everything matters to God, and he has left nothing to chance. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, we want to do so with humble hearts. We want to still whatever noise is going on inside of our minds, inside of our lives, and just ask that you enter into this time, that you speak through your word by the power of your spirit, that you would change our hearts, impact our lives in ways that brings glory and honor to your name. Would you do that through your word this morning by the power of your spirit to the praise and glory of your name? Amen. All right, turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 5, and let's look at these amazing verses together, beginning in verse 1. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul begins and says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Paul begins by looking back to what he's been discussing up to this point, saying, having been justified by faith. This is the foundation that he will now build on, and he's going to stack truth upon truth upon truth, looking at our redemption from every possible angle. Since God did all the work to credit his righteousness to us, taking our imperfect faith and accomplishing his perfect work of redemption. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace that Paul is describing here is not just this peaceful, easy feeling. There's much more to it than that. This is a new alliance, a new alliance where God takes those who were once enemies and makes them family. This is a piece of reconciled relationships. More specifically, a reconciled relationship between us and God. Because apart from God, we were enemies of God. We were hostile toward God's authority. And to be honest, God was hostile towards our sin. It demands his judgment, his wrath. The Bible describes this as enmity. Enmity, if you will, is the opposite of peace. We see that contrast when Paul's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, listen to what he says. Notice the contrast here, beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of, a, of the dividing wall. And where did that come from? By abolishing in his flesh, there's the opposite, the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. How did he do that? That he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death 
the enmity. Do you see what he did there? He kept contrasting the enmity and the peace. The enmity that exists because of our sin and the peace that exists because of Christ's sacrifice. So you might think of enmity as a barrier between us and God. It's a wall of sin that separates the ungodly from the holy. Paul says that we see that enmity in the law, and that's not because the law is somehow bad. The law is actually good because it reveals that barrier of sin that separates us from God, and it reveals our need for a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. He's the one who stepped into the world of the ungodly, the world in which we live, and made a way to the holy. His death on the cross is what broke down the barrier of the dividing wall of our sin. His forgiveness brings reconciliation so that we can have peace with God. Taking those who are enemies and turning them into family. In verse 2 it says that through Jesus we have obtained an introduction into the grace in which we now stand. In the original language that word introduction is actually pregnant with meaning. It was used to describe someone who was being announced in the royal court of a king. Because when you have peace with God, you have, as a child of God, direct access to the throne of God. I want you to think about that for a little bit because this is too important to just breeze right past. And in your mind's eye, I just want you to consider yourself walking into the presence of God. He wants you to know that you belong to him, that he delights in you, and that you've got nothing to prove. The king of all creation is inviting you to flourish in his kingdom of infinite grace, living in the freedom of everything he's created you to be. I mean, if you're able to get your head around that, that's just amazing. It's incredible. And that in and of itself should stir within us a heart of praise and gratitude for what has been accomplished by Christ. But Paul goes on and he says, we should exult in the hope of the glory of God. He's now looking forward to this future hope. That word exult is a, a joyful anticipation. It is a confident praise. We exult in the anticipation of the eternal joy in the presence of God. This is like having a ticket to a concert with a reserved seat, right? Not general admission where you show up and you hope you find a seat if there's any room left, right? That's not what this is. You have a reserved seat in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's speaking specifically to you as a child of God when you put your faith and trust in him. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be there also. We have joyful anticipation of eternal life in God's loving presence. Look at how he continues in verse three. He says, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, 
Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He begins by saying we should rejoice in our future hope, and now he says we should rejoice in our present suffering. And is there more applicable verse for where we are in life right now? I mean, we could have preached this sermon at another time, and there may have been a few of you here and there who were going through some hard times, but because of what's happening in our world today, we're all in it together. And at some level, we're all suffering and feeling the weight of everything that's happening around us. So no better time to consider what this is saying. We should rejoice in our future hope. But Paul says, but we should also rejoice in our present suffering. Now, this one's a little harder, isn't it? (laughs) Actually, it's a lot harder if you ask me. I mean, it's one thing to rejoice in the hope of everything being made right. It's another thing to rejoice when it seems like so much is going wrong. And yet, Paul wants us to see that not even suffering is wasted in God's kingdom of grace. It's amazing, isn't it? Not even suffering is wasted in God's kingdom of grace. And so as we enter into this passage, I want you to think about all that we're going through right now and know that it's not for nothing, that there's something that God intends in the midst of it all. And Paul says there's always divine purpose for our pain. Even when others intend something for evil, God can actually use that for good. And then Paul takes us down a path to show us how this plays out. And he first begins with how our suffering, our tribulation, leads to perseverance. That word tribulation or suffering, it means the same idea, brings with it this idea of pressure. It literally means, in the original language, pressure. The word for endurance literally means to remain under. So Paul is telling us that God can do good things when we remain under pressure. Kind of like a weightlifter who builds strength by remaining under the weights that they are lifting. We can see how God builds strong character when we remain under the weight of difficulty and suffering. And it helps, I think, if we're not surprised by our suffering. Okay? When we realize this is part of life, this side of heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. He's saying, look, anticipate difficulty in life and know that in the midst of that difficulty, God is working something good, that there's a divine purpose being fulfilled in the midst of hard times. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And and I know that we like to make uh, plaques and posters with promises of God, and that's really good. But you realize this is a promise too. Anybody got this one on a poster in their living room? No? But it's a promise. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But he says, take courage. Do not fear, for I have overcome the world. Now, I know, our our modern thinking suggests that God owes us a comfortable life when we make good choices. And so for many of us, myself included, sometimes when we do all the right things and still encounter difficulty, we say to ourselves, now wait a second, this isn't fair. This is not how this is supposed to work. 
And as a result, our disappointment only magnifies our suffering. We become bitter against God instead of relying on God's grace. But what if we looked at it differently? What if we actually expected suffering in our life? Not invite it. We're not masochist in that regards. But, but what if we expected suffering so that we weren't alarmed when it came? We live with the understanding that really life isn't fair. However, our faith reminds us that God is always good. Life isn't fair, but our faith reminds us that God is always good. Paul says when we remain under our suffering, God builds strong character in our life. In the same way that fire burns away the impurities of precious metals, then our suffering burns away the impurities of our faith. It exposes idols. It reveals our weaknesses and our deep, deep need for Jesus. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, in prosperity, God whispers. In adversity, God shouts. I don't know about you, but if you would take a chart and you would chart out seasons of growth in my life, and then you took another chart and you charted out seasons of suffering in my life, and you overlaid those on top of each other, you would find that the greatest seasons of growth most often came during the most difficult seasons of suffering. Nothing is wasted with God. Our suffering builds endurance. Our endurance builds character. And our character strengthens hope. See, one of the reasons that we can endure Difficult seasons in life is because we know that it won't last forever. Our suffering is always in, within limits and never without purpose. Let me say that again. That is a truth of Scripture that we need to grab a hold of. Our suffering is always within limits and never, ever without purpose. And one day, God's going to make every wrong right. <laughs> And suffering will go away. Because here's the thing. We were never, in God's original design, when he created humanity, we were not created for death or grief or pain or disappointment or broken relationships. All those things exist in life because of the presence of sin. And when sin is removed, it all goes away and suffering with it. We live eternally in the peace of God's presence. And until then, God uses suffering to strip away all the non-essentials in life. And it reminds us that there's really only one essential in life, and his name is Jesus. Suffering always accomplishes something. It's never, ever for nothing. And because God pours out his spirit through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we know that we never go through suffering alone. He's always with us, even in the midst of our difficulties. Look at how Paul continues in verse 6. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, 
though for perhaps a good man, someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the example of Christ's suffering for us should be the greatest encouragement for us in the midst of our own suffering. Because the one who deserved to suffer the least is the one who ultimately suffered the most. And yet God took that most vile and unjust suffering that the world has ever seen and used it to accomplish the greatest redemption that the world will ever know. And if God is able to accomplish that in Christ, is there any limit, think about this, is there any limit to what he can do for you? Because even when we were in our most helpless state, when we were dead in our trespasses and and sins, and, and remember, dead people don't move. This is a hopeless place to be. God rescued us. And not because there was anything that was righteous or good about us. This is not a story of bravery where one good person saves the life of another good person. We love those stories. There's tons of movies that are made with that that premise, that storyline in mind. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, how many of you would be interested in going to see a movie about someone who rescues a serial killer? Or someone who rescues Hitler? Anybody up for that? No, we look at stories like that and we think, man, they should get what they deserve. Vile, unjust. Unless, of course, that sinner is us. Which is essentially what took place. Even when we were undeserving sinners, Christ died for us. That's the story of the Bible. We were not saved because of our inherent worth. We were saved because of his inherent goodness. Our salvation is a demonstration of his unmerited favor and his unconditional love. In the kingdom of grace, God brings good out of all our suffering. Nothing is wasted. It's always within limits, and it's never without purpose. It's good news, isn't it? Look at how he continues in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. When you think about what we've gone through so far, these first few words of these verses really are astounding. Much more than being justified by faith, much more than having peace with God, much more than standing in grace and being secure in God's love, as if that wasn't already enough, he goes on and says, we're saved from God's wrath. Because remember, We were enemies who once rejected his authority. But that enmity, that barrier of sin has been removed by the cross. Which not only removed our hostility towards God, but it removed his hostility towards our sin because our sin was removed. That penalty was paid. We have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who were enemies have now become family. The reconciliation that we have through the cross brings eternal security in our relationship with God, which means we've got nothing to lose. If that's true, if we are eternally secure in the complete sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ, then we've got nothing to lose. We can live under the finished work of the cross. Since we know that what happens when we die, since that's a certainty, it should absolutely transform how we live. If we know with absolute certainty what happens when we die, it should transform how we live. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. He says there, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Having been reconciled to God, Paul says we now have the ministry of reconciliation. We have the responsibility to share about the love of Christ that covers the penalty of our sin so that we have eternal security in him. See, life is not about getting the most out of life. It's about giving our life away. Because the more we give, the more grace we gain. The more we suffer now, the more glory we experience in heaven. We know that's true because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says that these momentary afflictions are producing, there's something happening, that the momentary afflictions that we experience this side of heaven are producing an eternal weight of glory. That in some miraculous way, our eventual glory and joy will be made infinitely greater because of the suffering we experience here and now. Think about that. That in some miraculous way, in a way that only God could accomplish, that our future glory and joy is somehow miraculously, infinitely greater because of the suffering we experience here and now. Nothing is wasted. Nothing to prove. Nothing to lose. God works all things, including our suffering and pain, to accomplish his good purposes. We've got nothing to lose. We've got nothing to prove. And we can know that nothing is wasted. This is really important, I think, because of what we've been talking about, all that's happening in our world today. There's a lot going wrong, it seems, and it it seems like we're just continually moving in the wrong direction. The older generations, rightly so, are fearful for the world that their grandkids are going to grow up in. The younger generations are really not sure who to believe or if it'll ever change. That's understandable too. And yet, in the midst of it all, 
Hey, don't miss this. In the midst of it all, Christians should be the most positive people on the planet. Which doesn't mean that we live with this Pollyanna disconnect from reality. We should actually confront the evils of the world with the hope of the gospel. We have that responsibility. We should see our suffering as a deep connection with our Savior, relying less on the hope of this world and more on the hope of heaven. I don't know. The older you get, I promise you, whether you realize it or not, it's going to happen. The older you get, the more you long to be away from here and there with him. The more the hope of heaven strongly outweighs anything that would provide hope in this world. Nothing to prove. Nothing to lose. Nothing is wasted. The other thing is we can take comfort. And this is important because we often think of this differently. But listen to me. We can take comfort in knowing that the pain, the difficulty, the suffering that we experience in our life is not the result of God's punishment. We, we don't often think that, do we? Because how often have you been in a hard place and you say to yourself, as I've said to myself, why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong? as if the suffering is a result of God's punishment. But here's how we know that that's not true. Because if, God, if Jesus took our punishment on the cross, and he took all of it, then that means there is no more punishment to give. So our Father, our Heavenly Father, could discipline us because of him wanting to guide us to something better. We do that as parents, right? Right? We discipline to, to guide our kids to something better, but he's not punishing us because of something that we've done wrong. That penalty has already been paid, which is why we can always look at our pain and suffering through the lens of God's grace, knowing that his grace is a never-ending fountain of his infinite good. We're no longer enemies. We are members of God's family. God is no longer against us. In fact, he is eternally working for us, drawing us deeper and deeper into a life-giving relationship with him, even using our suffering to make our faith stronger. His presence brings us peace, even when things are going wrong. So even in the midst of our difficulties, we can be confident in the goodness of God. But in order for that to happen, this is important, in order for that to happen, we need to turn off the news and open up our Bible. We need to turn off the news and we need to open up the Bible. We need to crawl out of isolation and we need to seek to pursue one another. We need to focus less on our circumstances and focus more on our God. We should never, ever, ever let the world dictate what we are most passionate about as God's people. So this week, let me encourage you to do something. Let me encourage you to go to Psalm 145. This is a beautiful psalm. And this psalm describes the response of God's people who have learned to put their trust in Him. So I want you to read Psalm 145, and I want you to ask yourself, does this describe me? Does this describe where I'm living life right now? And if it's not, it's okay. 
Because remember, you live in the kingdom of God's infinite grace. And that grace is what allows you to not have everything right and still see God do things that are good in your life. And so just ask Him if this is not where you're at in Psalm 145. Just make it your prayer. Lord, would you please work in my life, even in the midst of my suffering, so that these words describe how I feel about who you are and what you're doing in this world. Will you do that? Set aside the time and make that your prayer. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being in your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. Thank you for the hope that is filled in these verses. I'm so grateful that I got to be here this morning to walk through these incredible truths that you just keep stacking one on top of the other like, like a diamond. And all these are different facets of the miraculous work of your salvation in our lives. Thank you for that privilege and for not leaving anything to chance, but thinking of everything so that we have absolutely nothing to prove. We have direct access into the throne of grace and you welcome us into your presence. Thank you, Lord, that nothing is wasted, that no matter how much difficulty and pain that we may go through, and even when we don't understand it, you are there in the midst of it and you are using it to accomplish a divinely good purpose. And very possibly, we may not see that completely fulfilled until we stand in your presence, but then it will be clear. So much so that even the glory and joy of that future time in your presence is made infinitely greater because of the difficulty and struggle that we have here and now. We can trust in that. Nothing is wasted. And because of that, Lord, nothing, we have nothing to lose. We are secure eternally. Not because of our conduct, but because of your promise. We are secure in your promise. Lord, thank you for that truth and for guarding us with your love. We can know that everything is within limits. And it always has purpose. And our faith reminds us that you are forever good. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. Have a good day.